Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, welcome this morning. I'm so glad that you're here at Wildwood today, and I would like to invite you to take out the Word of God and turn in it right now in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number 18. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it in the back part of it to page 108, and you would find yourself parked right at Acts chapter 18. You know, the year was 1970, and I was in my second semester at the University of Nebraska. And I was running around with a relatively small group of disciples and followers of Jesus. Our leader was a campus evangelist by the name of Dean Hatfield. Dean was 39 years old. By the way, Dean passed away two weeks ago at the age of 85. And I've said it before publicly, but I'll say it again. I would not be here today if it was not for the ministry of Dean Hatfield in my life all those years ago. We were a relatively small group of believers, but there was another small group of believers that we ran around with, and it was a a unique group. They believed that a second blessing from the Holy Spirit is something that every believer Every follower of Jesus needed to seek. They believed that very strongly. They believed that there was this initial experience that someone would have with the Holy Spirit, but it was important to have a second, more deep experience with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things is we would interchange and run around with them is they would ask us the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And uh, they would try to encourage us and say, you need to seek the full manifestation of the Spirit. And they would inform us that that was marked by a special experience called speaking in tongues. And I can still remember them saying, you know, when, if you think of yourself as an eight-cylinder spiritual engine, you're probably only hitting on two or four cylinders without this in your life. Uh, you need something more, Bruce. Now, there's actually a theological term to describe that, and that term is subsequence. When a theologian uses that term, he refers to the fact that some people believe that there is a subsequent to trusting in Christ additional experience that you need to have with the Holy Spirit, that it is required. Now, I remember when I was going through this, and we had our group and this other group, and we were sort of partners and did a lot of things together. I can remember thinking in 1970, I don't really know who's right. But one thing I was confident of, and that was that a study of Scripture would bring the answer to the question. Because I know our, our leader and, and our understanding was different than theirs. And one of the key passages in all of the Bible on uh, the idea of subsequence And the promotion of it comes in the section we're going to be looking at today in chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. We'll get there in a few minutes. We are continuing our our study that we've entitled Seeds. It's on the book of Acts, and it's really phase three in our study. And I've entitled the message today, Is There Something More? Now, if you haven't been with us in our study of Acts, I want to remind you that one of the keys to understanding the book of Acts is to understand that 
it is a book of transition. There's an incredible transition that happens in the book of Acts. There's a transition from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era. There's a transition from God using Israel as his primary tool to touch the world to God using the church to touch the world. There's a transition from meeting in the temple and the synagogue to meeting as the local church. There's a transition that occurs from the apostles being the key leaders to the elders of the church being the key leaders. And and there's also a transition from the Old Testament concept of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit was with them to the New Testament concept where the Holy Spirit is in the believers. And I just want to remind you when we talk about a book of transition that this just didn't happen in three days. It happened over years. It wasn't all in place by Acts chapter 2 when the church was birthed. In fact, I will remind you if you've been with us in this study that it was actually some 10 years, a decade, before there was even one Gentile added to the church of Jesus Christ. For a decade, it was all made up of Jews. And so it is a book of transition. Now, we're going to be looking today at chapters 18 and 19, and I just want you to know ahead of time, these chapters are packed. There's no way I can unpack everything that's in them, and I would encourage you to spend some time reading them. What we are going to do today, we're going to do fast and furious. So batten down the hatches, get ready for what we're going to be doing. And our plan today is to look at two reminders of historical transition and also two examples of satanic resistance that the church faces. And in those two reminders of historical transition, we're going to look at Priscilla, three people, Aquila and Apollos, that's in chapter 18, and then we're going to look at the disciples of John the baptizer in chapter 19, the passage we referred to previously, and then we're going to look at some examples of satanic resistance, and we're going to be reminded that we're in a war, and when we see resistance in our day, we shouldn't be shocked because the early church experienced that. So let's begin by the first reminder of historical transition in the book by looking at Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Now, I want to remind you that when we come to chapter 18, it's some 20 years after the day of Pentecost, so some 20 years from chapter 2 to chapter 18. And notice um, verse 18 Chapter, or rather, uh, chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these things, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found there a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had, com- had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul came to them, and because he was of the same trade, as Aquila and Priscilla. He stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade, they were tent makers. Now, one of the things that happened in that day is people would learn a skill and a trade, and Paul had the same trade background as Aquila had, and that was as a tent maker. Now, a tent maker in those days would work with leather, and they would build tents a lot of times for the military, and you remember the Roman army was the greatest military there has ever been. They would maybe build canopies for homes or for storefronts, and that's what they would do as this skill set. Now, Paul did not always work when he came to a particular town, but he came to Corinth, and he chooses to work. And you might say, why? Well, the reason why was that in Corinth, it was a city packed with religious hucksters who were out to fleece the people out of money. And Paul made the decision I think when I come to minister, I'm going to work 
by day and then minister by night. And that's where we get the idea of someone who's a pastor being a tent maker, you know, having a job besides his ministry job. But he runs across these people there in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, and they were followers of Jesus. There's no mention of their conversion here at all, so we, we would believe that they were believers before they intersected with Paul. And we learn a lot about them throughout the rest of the New Testament. We learn from Romans 16, verses 3 and 5, that the church in Rome met in their home. They were really church planters. Same thing is true later when they went to Ephesus. We learn from 1 Corinthians 16, 19, that the church in Ephesus met in their home. Now, all this is just a setup for what we want to look at in a little bit later on. We learn from verse 11 that Paul was there ministering in Corinth for a year and a half. Now, just drop down a little bit to verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took lead of the brothers and the sisters and put out to sea for Syria. He was headed for Syria, and he took with him Priscilla and Aquila. And then they, as a group of three, came, verse 19, to Ephesus, and Paul left them there, and ultimately, we learn from the next couple of verses, he moved on. In fact, what ends up happening in verse 23 of chapter 18 is Paul goes on to start his third missionary journey. From 1823 to 2117 is the third missionary journey of Paul. So Paul goes off on the third missionary journey, and he leaves behind in Ephesus Priscilla and Aquila. So as he's off on his third missionary journey, meanwhile, what's happening in Ephesus? Well, notice verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was an Alexandrian. That means he was from Alexandria, Egypt. And that was the great educational center of the day. You know, it's, it's amazing how we forget how significant some of these cities were. Do you know that in the library in Alexandria, they had, think about this, 700,000 volumes in their library. I don't know of any library short of the Library of Congress that has 700,000 volumes in it. It was in Alexandria that the Septuagint was translated the Hebrew into the Greek around 250 B.C., and so this guy comes from Alexandria. He is an eloquent man, it says. And it also adds at the end of verse 24 that he was mighty in the Scriptures. That tells me that he studied the Scripture at the time, which was the Old Testament, very, very carefully. And in verse 25, it says, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The verb that is translated there is the verb in Greek, katekeo. If you think of it, katekeo, you can see how the word catechism comes from it. And so he was catechized, he was formally trained, he was formally drilled in the Old Testament, and he understood the plan of salvation from the standpoint that there was promised in the Old Testament and anticipated Messiah. We also learn about this guy, that he was fervent in spirit. It's a, a, a term that comes from the verb to boil. He had this boiling inside of him, this enthusiasm. Where did that come from? It came from his biblical convictions. Because he had convictions, he was very fervent in spirit. 
And notice it says in verse 25, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He was teaching accurately about the things concerning the Old Testament Messiah. He knew all the prophecies, but he had a limitation. He was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Apollos' understanding biblically was not inaccurate. It was incomplete. He knew about the promise of the Messiah. He taught about that from the Old Testament. He knew what John the baptizer had taught. For example, in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8, John had said, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He said, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Paulus understood all that. He knew that. He knew that John had taught about repentance for forgiveness of sin and how they needed to turn to the God of the Old Testament. He knew that John had taught the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He knew all of this stuff. And so he comes to Ephesus and he begins to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Now let's just stop for a moment. Why would he be speaking boldly? Well, because he has deep scriptural convictions. You know, sometimes over the years, people have come to me as, I, as I've taught on a particular subject or whatever, and they've said to me, Bruce, 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 how can you be so sure? You know, there's all kinds of interpretations out there. And the answer I give when someone asks me that is, well, you know, what's happened is I have wrestled very carefully with the text of Scripture. And so I'm not, I'm not cocky about this, but I am confident, having done that, I'm confident of what the Word of God says on the subject. And that's exactly the way he was teaching. And what ends up happening is that Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26, hear him, and then it says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos needed what we all need on a regular basis if you live in the culture today. He needed an update, just like we get on our phones or on our tablets. He needed the latest update. He knew about the promises of the Messiah, but he was unaware of the fulfillment of what had occurred. He needed the latest update. He was missing that the Messiah was actually been proven to be a particular person, Jesus of the Nazarene. He needed to be updated on Jesus the Nazarene's death on the cross. He needed to be updated on the resurrection. He needed to be updated on the fact that the Holy Spirit had come. And a couple of things stand out to me in this section. Uh, first of all, regarding Priscilla and Aquila, um, they don't do some kind of a public rebuke of Apollos. They give a very heartfelt interaction with him, probably in their home. They probably invited them, him into their home, which was a sign in that culture of acceptance. And no doubt they affirmed the skill set that they saw him utilizing, but they did share with him the additional biblical perspective that he needed to have. Second thing I observed from all of this is something about Apollos. I mean, Apollos was a very gifted teacher, but he was teachable. If someone was going to open up the Bible and show him something that he didn't see, he was willing to listen to it. He was teachable, yet he was not gullible. 
he would no doubt check what he heard with the Old Testament scriptures that he had. So remember what last time, he was a, we looked at last time, he was from chapter 17, he was a Berean. He was teachable, and yet he was not gullible. Now, I, I want to remind you that it's been some 20 years since Acts chapter 2. And what do you see happening? Transition. It's still transitioning. People are still learning. Even though they knew God and walked with God and embraced the Old Testament, they're still learning because there's a transition as the information gets out. What ends up happening in verse 27 and 28, that the believers encourage him. They actually send him along, um, send him to Achaia, and he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he, verse 28, powerfully refuted the Jews in public now with his updated knowledge, uh, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus, the Nazarene, was the Messiah. That's Apollos. Do you, do you remember Apollos popping up someplace else in the New Testament? Anybody? Can you think of where it is? The book of 1 Corinthians. He shows up there. In fact, he becomes so effective in Corinth as a teacher that Paul lets us know as he's writing to the Corinthians that cliques began to form. There were some people who were in the Paul clique. You know, I love Paul's teaching style. I, I really get into Paul's teaching style. And there were other people who were saying, oh, Paul, look at Apollos. He's far more effective. I like Apollos' teaching style. You know, and, and I think we could get into the same kind of thing here at Wildwood. You know, we have two primary people sharing the pulpit and, and, and there's some people who no doubt could say, well, you know what, I really, I really prefer Mark's teaching style. That's the one I'm into. I really, when, when Mark's teaching, I want to be there. Or, or someone else might say, well, I like Bruce's teaching style. When, when, when Bruce is there, that's when I want to be there. You know what Paul basically told the Corinthians about all this stuff? He said, forget the fan clubs. Forget the fan clubs. You need to be there whenever the word of God is being opened up. You need to focus on Jesus, focus on the gospel, focus on Scripture, and growing yourself spiritually. So we're just looking at some reminders that there is historical transition that happens in the book of Acts. Second historical transition we want to look at regards the disciples of John the baptizer in chapter 19. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened that while Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and circled back to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Now, again, we can read something like that, and we don't have a feeling for what that meant. I want to give us a little historical background because it'll come to play a little later on this morning. He came to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a huge commercial center. Now, think back how far... And, and history that was, and how much the world's population was, was so much smaller. But Ephesus had 300,000 people who lived there. Ephesus had the largest outdoor stadium in all of Asia Minor. It held 25,000 people in it. And Ephesus was a religious center. It was the home of the famed Temple of Artemis. Artemis was her Greek name, Diana, was her Roman or Latin name. And the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. By the way, that what you see there on the screen is just a reconstruction. It doesn't look like that today, but that's the way that it looked. 
four, time lar four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It had 127 columns around it that were six stories high. And the temple of Artemis was full of priceless paintings and sculptures. And the number one sculpture that existed in the temple was the sculpture of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. It's a rather grotesque sculpture uh, where she is portrayed as being multi-breasted because she was the goddess really of sex and fertility. And lots and lots and lots and lots of money was made in Ephesus um, through the selling of figurines, both of Artemis and of the temple. Now look at the first part of verse 2. He runs across these disciples and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, to those who hold to a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, to those who hold to a subsequent experience, to those who believe in, in subsequence, just want you to know this is the top passage that they turn to. This is the one that my friends back in 1970 pointed out to me. Have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? What they're really implying is this is the norm for the age of the church. What they're really implying is every single person who names the name of Christ needs to be asked this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Sure, we knew you believed, but did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, they say, well, we haven't really even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And, and he said, into then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells a story of what occurred in the United States in the mid to latter 1700s. Uh, there were a number of colonists who left Virginia and they moved to the west and they settled in the mountains there. And there was one group of these colonists who moved out of Virginia and settled in the mountains to the west who for the next 20 years saw not even one white man come by. And then finally the day came when a small group of travelers came into their settlement. And in order to make conversation with them, these guys who'd been there for 20 years, they said to them, hey, what do you guys think of the new republic? What do you think of the new nation that we have? What do, you, what do you think of the policies of the Continental Congress? And their response was, what? what? What new nation are you talking about? What new republic are you talking about? We hadn't heard about any of this stuff. You know, in their view, they were still subjects of the King of England. They had never heard of the Revolutionary War. And they'd never heard of this, you know, strange guy, George Washington, who happened to be president of the new republic. Uh, what they were, were, were a mountain version of Rip Van Winkle. You know, they had just missed what had been going on. Well, when we come to Acts chapter 19, what we find are a group of spiritual Rip Van Winkles. They are Old Testament saints who are living in the unfolding New Testament era. They had become true believers and followers of God in the old economy, but they had yet to be incorporated into the church. 
when they said we hadn't really heard of the Holy Spirit, they, they knew that John had taught that in the future Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit, but they had just become unaware that the Holy Spirit had been given and the Holy Spirit had come. Paul says in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John's baptism was preparatory. It looked forward to the coming of Messiah, and they had experienced that. But believer's baptism, which is what we practice in the church, is something different. It looks back on the finished work of Christ on the cross. What they were missing was not necessarily information about the Holy Spirit per se. What they were missing was information about the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. So there's obviously more conversation that happens. And when they hear this, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They underwent believers' water baptism, because that's the pattern. You believe in Jesus, and then you're baptized over and 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 over, and that's, what, that's the pattern that we see. They believed, and then they were water baptized. They believed, and then they were water baptized. Then notice what happens in verse 6. And Paul laid his hands upon them, and when he did that, the Holy Spirit came on them, began to indwell them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. This was a verification. This was verifying that these Old Testament saints were now part of the same body called the church. On the screen, I'm going to put up a, a chart. And by the way, don't, don't feel like you have to copy this chart. Uh, it will be available on the city and, uh, and the, on the Facebook and also on the website as a PDF, and so you don't have to fret if you want to try to follow this information, but it's a chart about the Holy Spirit in historical transition in the book of Acts. And you'll notice that there are four columns here. There's a column on Acts chapter 2 when the Jews entered into the church, Acts chapter 8 when the half-Jews, the Samaritans, entered into the church, Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles entered into the church, and then Acts chapter 19, when the disciples of John, Old Testament saints, if you would, entered into the church. And notice in the center part, the question is asked, was the Holy Spirit given to these individuals at the very point of faith? And in Acts 2, it's basically yes and no. It's no for the disciples because they'd already had faith in Jesus Jesus just told them, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. So they already were believers, but then the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. But the 3,000 people that Peter preached to that day, when they believed, the Holy Spirit came upon them instantly. That was the more normative thing for the church age. In Acts chapter 8, did they receive the Holy Spirit at the point of faith? And the answer there is no, if you go back and look at it. Um, we believe that witnessing of the, them being brought into the body of Christ and the bestowal by the apostles was needed to ensure the unity of the church because this was a shocking thing to have Samaritans come in. In Acts chapter 10, did they receive the Holy Spirit at the point of faith? The answer is yes. That's just the normative, normal thing. And then you come to Acts chapter 19. Um, did they receive the Holy Spirit at the point of faith, the New Testament version of the indwelling of the Spirit? And the answer is no. And it's very similar to Acts 8, 
We needed some verification by an apostle because they hadn't heard the specifics about Christ. But in all these cases, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, there are confirming signs present and the apostles are present in every situation. Now, again, I'll have that chart up for you. I'll also have a more detailed chart if you're that kind of a person on uh, the coming of the paraclete. The point of all of this is this. Acts 19 is not the norm in the church age. It's not the norm. The norm we hear, learn about in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when it talks about how that when we believed, we received the Holy Spirit, we were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is the norm. What do we see happening in Acts 19? It's just part of the transition that occurs in the book of Acts. Do we need something more? Not at all. In fact, we learn from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 that at the point of salvation, when we believe in Christ, it says that we received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. How many are left out when it's every? We learn from Colossians 2.10 that when we trusted in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to us, we are complete in Him. I've shared over the years that Lewis Berry Chafer often would say that at the moment you trusted Christ, you received 33 spiritual um, riches that came to you at the point of salvation. The point of all of this is we don't need to get more men and women. We don't need to get more. We already have the whole Holy Spirit. It's not like we got an arm and a leg and then we needed more. We need to learn more about what God has given to us at the point of salvation. We need to learn more about the spiritual riches that he has given to us. So that's just a couple of examples of transition. And I say all that just to remember when you're in the book of Acts, remember there's transition happening. There's transition that occurs. Now, I want to look very quickly at some examples of satanic resistance, and these are important to, to, to look at because we need to be reminded that we're in a spiritual war. And so when we find resistance, and even sometimes it's harsh, we shouldn't be surprised because our brothers and sisters in Christ went before us, and they experienced it. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time looking at these, but first of all, we have the example uh, of the Jewish exorcist in chapter 19, verses 11 to 20, and I'll have you read through it. But what was happening is that Paul was doing a lot of miracles. And one of the miracles he was doing is he was casting out demons. And then there's these Jewish exorcists who try to imitate that. And um, they were basically uh, seven sons of a particular priest called Sceva. And, and they were trying to cast out these um, various demons. And at one point, verse 15, the, uh, the evil spirit says to them, Hey, you know what? I, I recognize Jesus. And I've heard about Paul, but who are you dudes? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on these seven sons and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I would have loved to have seen that little event. Boy, that would get your attention, and that's exactly what happened. It got people's attention. So this whole event, verse 17, became known to all, both to Jews and to Gentiles, Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. People were trusting in Christ. 
And also, many of those, verse 18, who had believed, kept coming forward, and they would confess and disclose their past practices. And many of those who had practiced magic, you know, these were people who'd been into the occult, they had been into witchcraft, they had been into astrology, they had been into contact with the dead, and they brought their books together, and they began to burn them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, you know, sometimes you read something like that, and you think, well, what was it? Did, like, people throw eight books on the fire? Uh, No. The value of these books that they they burned because they were part of their old life, I figured this out, was the equivalent of $8 million. Try Try to picture how big that pile of books would be in our day if we took $8 million worth of books and burned them. Now that sets us up for the second satanic resistance that we want to look at as we get ready to kind of wrap this up, and that is the riot that occurs in Ephesus. And we see that in verses 19, 23 to 41. Chapter 19, 23 to 41. And this is, this is a riot that happens at the instigation of a guy by the name of Demetrius. Verse 23 says, there occurred at that time, this is an understatement, no small disturbance concerning the way, that is the believing community. For a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, and he was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, they were making a killing on these things. And they were making these statues which were a representation of Artemis. Some of them were making replicas of her temple. And he gathered together, verse 25, the workmen of similar trades, and he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. I mean, guys, this is what feeds our families. This is what allows me to buy the boat and, you know, the the vacation home and everything else. And, And what we're seeing is that not only here in the city of Ephesus, but all around Asia Minor, Paul has been persuading and turning away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. In other words, the conversion of these people is hitting us in the most sensitive part of the human anatomy, in our wallets. And you know, but you know, you guys not making money, it's kind of hard for people to get in a frenzy over the slumping sales of some idle figurines. It's just hard. I mean, the people who are making the money, fine, but you can't really get the population at large charged over that. And so Demetrius is very crafty. He ups the ante, and he begins to talk about the civic pride of Ephesus. Notice he says in verse 27 in the middle, notice that the temple of the great goddess Artemis is now being regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia Minor and even the world worships will be dethroned from her magnificence. I mean, he's doing the godmother country and apple pie thing. We're going to be a minor city. It's going to wipe out everything. Notice the people's reaction in verse 28. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. This is the people. And they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, most scholars believe that this likely occurred during the annual Artemis Festival. You say, okay, big deal. What was the annual Artemis Festival? Well, it was an incredible festival that featured drunkenness and carousing and sexual debauchery and ritual prostitution. 
You know, when you, when you see what's going on in New Orleans at, at Mardi Gras, and, you know, people are walking on the, on the street right there, and you say, man, it's really kind of crowded. Yeah, there's a couple hundred people there. But we're going to see. This is like 25,000 people that have gathered. This is Mardi Gras on steroids. And notice it says in verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, into that stadium that had been cut into Mount Peon. Get hold, 25,000 people. And everything is filled with this confusion. A mob mentality breaks out. This is Ferguson, Missouri, you know, where people stop thinking logically, and there's this collective rage that begins to flow. And one of the things that they do is they grab Gaius and Aristarchus in verse 29 because they're associated with Paul. And then Paul, in verses 30 and 31, he says, I'm going going in there. I'm going in among those 25,000 people. And the disciples are saying, oh, Paul, don't go in there. I mean, you'll never come out of there alive, basically. And so mayhem begins to develop. In verse 32, some were shouting one thing, and some were shouting another thing. For the assembly was in confusion, and the majority, I love this, did not even know for what reason they'd come together. I mean, he's a bunch of drunken people that don't even know what's going on. Some people have said, well, that sounds a lot like some church's congregational meetings. I don't know. I've never been to one like that. We don't actually have congregational meetings at Wildwood. And then in the course of all this, a guy by the name of Alexander, who's a Jew in verse 33, he wants to come in there and separate the Jews away from the Christians and basically say, hey, don't blame us as Jews here. Uh, We're not one of those Christians. But they don't even listen to the guy. And then in verse 34, something really amazing happens. It says, when they recognize that Alexander was a Jew, a single outcry. Remember everyone, we're yelling this, we're yelling this. Now it's a single outcry. And they shouted for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I can't even imagine that. Thousands of people. Then we have that happen in the OU football games. We do some chanting, but solid for two hours nonstop. Can you imagine if we were going to do that? You know, great is the city of Norman. Great is the city of Norman. Great is the city, you know, for two hours. Or great are the Oklahoma Sooners. Great are the Oklahoma Sooners. Great, you know, in unison for two hours. Or, you know, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A, Oklahoma, for two hours. Again, uh, you know, on and on and on. That's exactly what they were doing. Now, here's what's interesting. You look at this incredible frenzy. How does God decide to deal with this? I mean, is God still on his throne? Is he still sovereign? Is he still providential? Well, you know, here's how he deals with it. He decides in his providence to use a pagan city official. And in verse 35, the town clerk, which in that day is a lot like a mayor, he steps up and he says, hey, hey, listen, we got to look at the facts in verse 36. Let's not do anything rash. In in, in verse 37, he says, you brought these people here and they're not robbers of temples. They're not blasphemers of our, our goddess. He said, they haven't been talking down Artemis. They've been talking a lot about the person of Jesus Christ, but they haven't been talking down Artemis. And in verse 38, he says, look, if Demetrius and and the craftsmen have a complaint, we have civil courts. They can file a suit. We can deal with it there. We can just deal with it on that level. And then in verse 40, he says, look, we're, we're, whoa, 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 whoa here. Time out. He said, we're in danger of being accused of a riot. You know, there could be a reprisal from Rome that comes, and they were a special city. One thing that was intolerable to Rome was civil unrest. And I want us to learn from all of this that despite satanic resistance, 
God was still large and in charge. And the promise remains that Jesus gave, and that is the promise, I will build my church. It doesn't make any difference what kind of resistance there is out there. Now, we've covered a lot of stuff. It's been fast and furious. I want to just tie it together for a moment and talk about some life response, some lessons we can learn from this. I want to talk about three of them. Life response number one, don't seek something more. Don't let someone sell you that bill of goods. Peter, when he wrote his second epistle in chapter 1, verse 3, said this, when we come to faith, God granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Such an important spiritual principle to understand. We don't need something more. Second life response, we need to be diligent in handling the Scripture accurately. 2 Timothy 2.15, many of us are familiar with this, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That last phrase is literally in the original language, cutting it straight. Paul's writing this. This is a tent maker term. We need to cut the scripture straight. We need to handle it accurately. Let's not be sloppy. Let's study it. Let's make sure we're handling it in an accurate fashion. And then the third life response, remember we're in a spiritual war. And sometimes I think we forget this. Sometimes we just expect life to be smooth out there. And just like our brothers and sisters from centuries ago, opposition will arise. And there are storm clouds out there, men and women, in our own culture. You know, there's going to be battles over truth. What is truth? There's battle over sexual practices. We're being accused of being people who are intolerant. There's going to be battles over the exclusiveness of the gospel. Aren't all religions good? The Bible says that there's only one way to get to heaven. So remember, we're in a spiritual war. God is still large. He is still in charge then and today. And the promise remains that Jesus gave, and that was the promise, I will build my church. It's fascinating to me that you see all this conflict going on in Ephesus, and we have this guy, Demetrius, who started it all. And you know what? Demetrius has long been forgotten. If he wasn't recorded in Acts 19, no one would ever have heard of the guy. And yet then you look at the Apostle Paul, and here we are all these multiple centuries later, and his works are read every week in churches around the world. We're in a spiritual war, but God is still in charge. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the opportunity to understand it better today. And help us to remember that we're in this spiritual war. Sometimes we're just so shocked that things are happening. And one of the beautiful truths that we can count on is the fact that no matter what we may face, whether it's this week, next month, next year, that you are with us, that you're the God that we can count on, and you will always be there for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.